Hi, this is ARK Watson with Catholic Reads, and today I'm in, I'm joined by Chris Sparks, author of How Can You Still Be Catholic? Uh, 50 Answers to, um, to 50 Good Questions. And um, so, uh, and in addition to that, he's also, uh, what, what editor are you at Marion? You're with Marion Press? I'm told I'm senior books editor. <laughs> You're told you're senior books editor? <laughs> I'm informed. <laughs> the reality is, might be slightly different. Well, I, it's a matter of, of simply doing the job, really. So, yeah, just trying to serve. The Marians have their, their motto, Pro Christo Ecclesia, and serve it for Christ in the church. So it's, you know, you just, you do, you do what you can with what you got. And so it's, it's a matter of taking on whatever project comes up, and doing the best you can with it. And I, I think a lot of, I hope a lot of your listeners know Marion Press's stuff. They know the Diary of St. Faustina. They know Father Michael Gately's stuff, Father Donald Calloway's stuff. Um, maybe some people have heard of Father Chris Alar's After Suicide that's being released in September. Yeah, there's a lot of really great literature that Marion comes out with. Um, so for you and your book, how did you come up with um, the idea for this, for this book? Well, I got involved in internet apologetics in order to answer for myself the question of, do I stay Catholic or not? Do I believe this is true or not? And I thought the answer was probably yes, but I also thought I had to give it a truly fair shake and find out what were the real objections to it. And the easiest way to do that would be to go and find all the people who were arguing against it and find out where they thought they had the best chance of beating it and seeing if there were answers. So that was a, a, you know, I don't know if it was a lengthy process, but it, it was some years, and at the end of which I thought, yes, this is true. And then further, I thought, all right, best to share this with some other people. Make available what I found so it's not just me in my head. Mm -hmm. So were you, uh, like, preparing to write this book the whole time you were doing this, or...? Like how long, how long b between your idea for it and its uh, release was that? Uh, well, it, between the thinking of the idea and writing it, it was about a year. Oh, uh, I, was, I was visiting grandparents for Christmas. I was lying in, on their floor at night, staring at the ceiling, thinking very grumpily that there are no Catholic books in grocery stores. Why are there no Catholic books in grocery stores? The last time I saw a Catholic book in a grocery store, it was what? The Catechism. <laughs> There's nothing since that. This is terrible. What sort of book would people actually pick up on a grocery store shelf if they saw it? And the title popped into my head, How Can You Still Be Catholic? It would have to be something like that. It would have to sound possibly anti-Catholic, possibly by a non-believer, possibly from the outside, in order for someone to even take it off the shelf. And so I had my start of a question. Over the next year, I... I think it was over the next year, next year, next two years, something like that, I decided to get going. I knew I was supposed to write. I knew that I had a calling to write, and this was an idea that seemed fairly easy to do. So I put it out on Facebook. Finish the question. How can you still be Catholic when? And I got lots and lots of questions <laughs> very quickly. Uh, were these the questions in the book? Were they all the questions that you got on Facebook? Or did you, was it, were, like, did you uh, just pick some out? 39, yes. 39 were, were the questions from people on Facebook. One was me, 
definitely the how can you still be Catholic when you're so, when you're a sinner? Because honestly, that is, I think that's indispensable. I think that is sort of the er question for Catholics today, is is just. Everybody else outside looking in going, we're being honest about, you know, we're all screwed up or the world's not perfect or whatever. How can you all still be holier than thou or whatever? And it's kind of, we aren't. We confess our sinfulness with every Hail Mary, with every Our Father, with every Mass that we attend. We're all very clear. We're not good at this. <laughs> but we believe it to be true. And therefore, you know, we're, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Not... I am worthy, said Peter, not I find this fun, said Peter, not this is easy or this will bring me money or this will be, you know, good on my resume. But <laughs> Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. So here we are. Um, and then my, my editor had a number of questions he wanted to add in. So we have we came up to a total of 50. OK, OK, that's cool. So have any of the people who originally asked you these questions like read your book or gotten back to you on it? I, I think I think a few I've I know have copies and I haven't really heard back from anyone. I think mm -hmm. honestly this book is less going to be about conversion and far more about understanding. Because honestly most people are not looking for an intellectual answer in order to convert. There are some I have had one really extraordinary review on Goodreads that got me really excited because this person said, I'm paraphrasing badly, but said this was sort of the key in the lock, that, that it answered everything. And she's, she's, she can believe again. And it's kind of, oh, all right, that's awesome. <laughs> I yeah, I, awesome. I saw that review. I saw that review. I've actually got it up here because I, I just thought it was earth shattering too. Can I read it? Sure. Cool. Okay, so this is by uh, Judy Kay uh, on Goodreads. Nearly all my life I have been anti-religious. I got and read this book as an unselfish act of friendship to better relate to a new Catholic friend. This book broke down every single wall that had held me in contempt prior to investigation that I had so neatly created. My arrogance and preconceived assumptions parentheses prejudices have shattered and i am left with a profound respect and desire to know as you do i cannot tell you how strange and foreign it is for me to feel god that this book was created specifically for me to open my mind heart and soul in ways i never even knew i had been so thoroughly and completely blocked from him and today i am willing to feel that i can and will be blessed judy k former atheist yeah. I, didn't I mean, think that was possible. So that was really cool. Yeah, that's really cool. That I, if I got a review like that, I'd be like, okay, I'm done. God, yeah. take me down. Yeah, I, I posted that on Facebook and said, yeah, this is okay. We're good. That was worth it. <laughs> yeah, if you can change just one, just one life, it's yeah. it's, it's worth it, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But for most people, it'll be far less that sort of unlocking event, I think. Maybe more, that'd be really cool. But I, I think it'll be far more the, oh, there are answers. Or, oh, it's not quite the way I thought. Or, that's interesting that people have actually thought about this, that it's not just Catholics ignoring the issues, but rather that, yeah, there are answers. Or hopefully for some people, it'll be, wow, this is a lot more complicated of an issue than I thought. And, and just... I think any opening to truth is enough for God to do all sorts of things we don't expect. 
Yeah, I know that in my own conversion, whenever um, someone would, you know, I'd be debating a Catholic or or reading a source, and someone would give me a really good answer that I didn't have an argument against. Yep. Uh, my response wasn't, "Oh, you're right." It was, "Huh, that's interesting." Yep. Um, <laughs> you know, because. In my head, I was completely confident that, well, I just don't know the answer, but I need to go to the library and look this up, and uh, and I'll come back with the answer. And then, you know, I didn't always. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, if you're, if you're, any listeners out there, if you're talking with, um, with non-Catholic friends and you don't hear anything after you give your answer, that's a good response. <laughs> yeah. And even some, I mean, they fight hardest when it actually gets beneath the defenses, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, yeah. It's a terrible metaphor to a certain extent, but it's like with exorcism. <laughs> Things get really dramatic when the devil's about to lose, not when he's strongest. No, I think that's that's very accurate. That's very accurate. Uh, about a week before I um, capitulated and, and decided to convert, uh, I went through RCA twice, and the RCA the first time to disprove it and the rcia teacher told me you'll become catholic when hell freezes over <laughs> <laughs> i didn't know he'd read dante <laughs> yeah well and then there's the the thing that i always find funny which is there's a town in michigan named hell so hell freezes over every year <laughs> <laughs> you can go there <laughs> yeah you know in on 6606 they had a whole festival and little certificates that you could get that showed that you were in hell on <laughs> 6606. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, anyway. That's hilarious. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think um, what I've, I've read, there's a lot of apologetics books out there in the Catholic world. I think if, if Catholic publishing and literary culture does anything right, I think we've got solid apologetics and we know it and we take as much advantage of it as we can. Yep. Um, but uh, what kind of made your book stand out to me apart from the others was the manner you answered the questions. It, it really did feel like you were talking to the person behind the question and not just robotically answering the facts, which is something that, I prefer to do, I prefer to leave all um, emotion or like, you know, like sometimes when the way someone asks something, you can tell they've been hurt. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, honestly, I, one of the things that you, you hear repeatedly in philosophy and theology courses and in apologetics is just the only two, two good reasons to disbelieve in God are evil and suffering. And so most people's doubts or skepticism about anything is, especially religion, is, is tied in some way to either of those two mysteries. We have some really good answers. We have some incredible models of good suffering, John Paul II being one of the recent outstanding ones, and Jesus Christ, of course, being the perennial, and his mother being the perennial outstanding ones. But even with that, there is something so isolating and so unique about personal suffering that 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 will be a challenge for every generation to the end of the world. So that's always something very important to keep in mind. Um, 
it, it's the old, you know, walk a mile in someone else's shoes, get a sense of where they come from. You know, most people don't doubt because they're malicious. There are some. Trolls exist. <laughs> but, but most people doubt because they have been hurt or someone they know have been hurt. And, of course, I mean, this book came out in 2017. No one knew at that point what was going to blow up in 2018. Nobody knew we'd have the Grand Jury Report as, nearly as bad as it was. Nobody knew that we would have the Cardinal McC former Cardinal McCarrick scandal. Nobody knew, etc., etc., ad nauseum. There are a lot of people who don't believe for very good reasons these days. You know, um, and you have to keep that in mind. And honestly, if, if you don't have a sympathy with that, I don't know if you can answer their questions at all. Um, most, most of the questions are not going to be about whatever the question's about. It's going to be about the abuse crisis. It's going to be about they know someone who was hurt. They know someone who was told nothing had happened. They know someone who has felt lied to. So there has to be that, that ability to sympathize, to empathize, to be open. The same way with really effective pro-life ministry. Really effective pro-life ministry comes from people like Abby Johnson, who were there, who have either had an abortion themselves, worked in the abortion industry, or you know can, can understand and sympathize with the other side. It doesn't necessarily come from sort of an easier stance of either self-righteousness or simple condemnation. You have to love your enemy. You have to love your neighbor, or else they will never... They will never find Christ. It's not, because essentially this isn't about winning an argument. This is about introducing people to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it, it, has to be, it has to come from a place of love. So given that um, these answers have to come from a place of love, we're, I mean, you're already very, very educated when you started writing this book, but uh, were there any questions that you think gave you the most trouble or, or gave you more trouble than you ex expected? Um, yeah, I think certainly the ones where I have sort of the most distance from it. So where, you know, how can you be Catholic when it's going to hurt your family so much? That's something that people like Scott and Kimberly Hahn lived, where his, his move towards Catholicism came at great personal cost. And their marriage was kind of rocky for a while because this, this isn't supposed to happen, you know. And so I sort of point people in the direction of answers, but I have to be very careful myself about trying to, you know, oh, it's fine. It's all worth it. You know, I haven't lived that. I grew up in a family where my mom's Catholic, dad's Protestant, where we went to mass throughout. Dad was very supportive of mom raising us as Catholic, and, and he goes to mass more than a lot of Catholic dads. Um, he kept getting invited to join the Knights of Columbus over the years, but they stopped asking when they found out he was Protestant. Um, so I, I have had a very supportive Catholic upbringing. Um, so I can, I can say to people, yeah, there are, there are other people who have had to wrestle with this. Yeah, there are, you know, I can point you to some of the famous stories, and, and we believe in the faith that it's certainly worth it. Um, J.R. Tolkien's mom was sort of cast out from her family and probably died younger than she should have because her family basically just left her penniless when she became Catholic and would not maintain contact, would not support them, did not help out at all. And so Tolkien and his brother were raised by a local Catholic priest for the remainder of their minority. 
uh, and and that's that was a huge part of his life, of his upbringing, of his formation, was the immense cost, the immense sacrifices mom made for them to have the Catholic faith. So people have shown that it's worth it. They have lived lives that have shown it is worth it. But I can't speak from personal experience on this. I'm sorry, I had no idea that Tolkien's mom went through that. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, it, there's a reason why, in some ways, he sets it up so that like, Gandalf... I'm, I don't remember the Valar's names. I'm not Stephen Colbert. I'm not that good. But the Valar that Gandalf was trained by, in a special way, was the, the Valar, I think, of, of grief. Kind of Our Lady of Sorrows, essentially, mm -hmm. uh, in that mythology. And I think there's a reason for that in Tolkien's life. Also World War One. also the loss of school friends and really close friends early on, also a lot of other factors in his life. But I think, I think that, that orphaning early was certainly part of it as well. Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned that your dad is Protestant. Has he read this book? Have he, has he given you any feedback on it? He has. Not much. I think he's, I think he's proud of it. I hope so. Um, and again, I mean, this is, I knew, I knew going in, I wasn't going to convert family members because, you know, it's the whole prophet. It's not known in his own country and sort of, I just, it was, it may be, a, it may be an act of grace someday, but I doubt I would be the one bringing that about. It's probably, if ever the family becomes Catholic, it'll be because of someone outside the family. Mm -hmm. um, so I think he liked it. That's good. Um, what are these, so we talked about like what question kind of gave you, types of questions that gave you the most trouble, but mm -hmm. what questions do you feel like you could say more on? Like the ones where you had to cut your word count and then cut it again? Yeah. And, um, I, th I mean, all of them, all of them are often these immense issues where there have been books, there have been libraries dedicated to some of these things. The Crusades, the Inquisition, Galileo, some of the the church versus science stuff, you know, it's these are immense topics. But I knew that if I had a prayer of anyone picking this up, they had to be relatively short responses. Hence, the recommended reading at the end to kind of give people that sense of there's a lot more to be said on this. And I know I didn't say it all, but here, here's a place to start. Um, I think, you know, I think some of the things, especially some of the historical things. Until the end of the world, they're not going to be fully answered. You know, why did the church think it was a good idea to send our, our criminals, essentially, from Europe south? And ha that was the genesis of the crusading indulgence for the First Crusade. Now, very quickly, a lot of the kings, the nobility, a lot of the society sort of got on board, and so it was a much broader base of people than initially might have happened. But essentially, what what it kind of was for a number of the the worst of European society was the same sort of, you know, prison or the military. You choose. <laughs> you know, either we execute you or you go south. You go and fight in Jerusalem. And a lot of them chose Jerusalem. So when you get those stories of atrocity, that's essential context, I think. It's the dirty dozen. It's not it's not the the pure and perfect knight. It's not Galahad and and all of the greats of Arthur's Round Table, um, they they kind of they sent their bad guys. 
uh, it makes me think of um, Colleen Drip's books. She has a, a space, uh, colonized space world where um, these criminals from one planet have that same choice and end up being bodyguards for missionary priests and are really awkward about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think, I think, too, like, as, as problematic as it is to send... Uh, your criminals into such a delicate situation. Um, there's there's something to be said about the opportunity for redemption. Um, Absolutely. And it, it always has to be reiterated, because everybody's forgotten, that the Crusades were not our invasion of the Middle East. The Crusades were a counteroffensive after a good several hundred years of invasion, which, again, has almost been completely forgotten in the West. Um, every the wars go between Christians and Muslims go back to the life of Muhammad. He led some of them, and announced his intent to invade and conquer the rest of the world before he died. And so his successors start out, and jihad spreads everywhere. So the first four hundred years of Islamic history, are the conquest of what was then then became kind of the relatively stable boundaries of the Islamic Caliphate. And then for the next umpteen hundred years, it was a lot of border wars with the occasional deep incursion into that territory. Things collapsing in the 1800s and, and the Ottoman Empire falling apart with the World War I. But like, it's not, it's not Christian, evil Christians going south to you know peaceful territory. It was Christian pilgrims coming north saying, we've been kicked out. We cannot live safely there anymore they are they are blocking off the holy places they are robbing the pilgrims um there was an appeal for help to the pope from the byzantine emperor at the time there was a lot triggering this <laughs> and it wasn't money it wasn't the prospect of of temporal power it was rather hey we got a lot of people who are getting very badly hurt and also we we really should stop killing each other in christian europe <laughs> and actually turn our attention to the people who are killing their brethren elsewhere. So, yeah, that one is definitely far more complex than three pages could handle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so, touching back on, um, you know, like, these conversions aren't going to happen through necessarily just logic, but through loving the person we're talking with, loving our enemies. Um, what do you think is either that something that, like for for your readers that pick up your your book and they're you've got a lot of really great information in, in your book about facts and statistics of apologetics, but if they want to kind of adopt that manner that you're able to capture and how to answer empathetically, um, do you have any? Like suggestions or practices for for kind of adopting that um yeah number one is definitely listen and number two remember that we come at this from a position of strength the faith is true <laughs> and and as like you said the genre of catholic apologetics is so rich and so strong these days that we we are very firmly ensconced in yeah, there's, there's lots of great data, there's lots of great theology, there's lots of great history, philosophy that backs us up. 
So we're not coming at this from kind of, we have nothing to bring to this fight. Oh God, oh God, oh God, we've got to do our best in spite of being absolutely unprepared. We come at this from a true position of strength, which means we can listen, which means we should be able to absorb nutty anti-Catholicism. A lot of anti-Catholicism is truly nuts. You know, just as the Jews suffer anti-Semitism, age in, age out, why? They're the chosen people of God. The devil hates them. <laughs> they will always be a target for the forces of evil till the end of the world, because the devil cannot stand them. Same thing with the Catholic Church. We will be the targets of nutty anti-Catholicism till the end of the world, because this is actually what Christ established. And so you have to have patience with that. Not patience in the sense of, oh, it's fine, it doesn't matter, I'm not going to do anything about it. But patience in the sense that you let them spew the bile, and then you start to pick it apart. And you don't have to know everything. You just have to be able to point out, all right, I don't know about this, this, and this, but that bit, that's completely wrong, or that goes completely against my experience, or clearly you don't know the liturgy, which I attend every Sunday, right? You attend the Mass every Sunday, you should be attending the Mass every Sunday. This doesn't fit the liturgy. This is not the actual description of the liturgy. You know, you pick apart what you know. Come at it with your strengths. Come at it with the things that you're really familiar with. Point out to them, this this doesn't, this isn't real, guys. You know, it's, like, I really got started with the whole apologetics thing because there was this one really faithful Protestant guy in my high school in Astoria named Art. And Art, you know, had his Bible, and Art for the talent show would sing the hymn, and Art was out to save all the souls he could. Probably a saint, holier guy than I am. But he was trying to save me, the poor benighted Catholic, as they do. And one day, he and a friend were talking, and where, where is there anything Catholic in Scripture? Where does any of the... And I said, all right, what, what do you want to... I'll look something up. What do you... What? Where's confession? Where's confession in the Scripture? It's there. I know it's there. I had no clue, but I was kind of counting on it being there. I'll go look it up. So I come back at them the next day, and I looked it up and completely forgotten the scripture. It was John something. So they're looking in their Bibles, and Art finds it. I said, there it is. And he was sitting there staring at his Bible, and the guy said, oh, that doesn't prove anything. And Art said, no, no, he's right. It's there. And Art looked at me, and he said, you were the first Catholic who has ever bothered to defend their faith to me which has stuck with me to this day because that's stupid. <laughs> you know, we have this inestimable treasure and how dare we not defend it. Um, and at the same time, it's not, it, you know, it didn't matter that I didn't have the answer right then and there. You can go and you can look it up. You can say, hang on, and I'll, I'll check it out. And sometimes you are stuck speaking to someone of goodwill who will hear what you're saying and acknowledge, yes, okay, that's true. Didn't know that before. And it's not about, you're not going to, you know, stand up and make 3,000 converts in one day unless the Holy Spirit so acts. This is not up to us. The Holy Spirit wants to make 3,000 converts, he will. What's up to us is chiseling away, is doing a little bit, is starting something, doing something that wouldn't otherwise have been done. So you answer that one question. You talk to that one person. You love this one person a little closer to Christ. You help out where you can. The Holy Spirit is going to take it, and he's going to make something out of it that you can't even imagine. Whether he knows their heart, you don't. 
try to be as empathetic and as sympathetic as you can. Try to be as open as you can. But it's it's conversions are made converts are made by the Holy Spirit, not us. Conversion is in the Holy Spirit's hands, not ours. So the prayer is just as important and more important than any of the answers given. To uh, to bring back your exorcism analogy, yeah, it's not it's not the exorcist that does the delivering. Yeah, yeah, it's the spirit of God. So all things are possible, and at the same time, um, it's not up to us. We're not in control. We're not in charge. You cannot make a convert. You cannot force a convert. You can help. You can give them a boost, you can pray for them, you can bless them, you can give them a sacramental, you know, the, we have so many things that we can do. One thing that has driven me nuts, again and again, I have heard from Catholics, we have to wait till Father tells us to do something. I look at them, because Vatican II has told us, the popes have told us, the scriptures have told us, the tradition tells us, the saints tell us, and the masses end with, go, you are sent. Go and spread the good news. Go, do it. You have been told by Father, guys. Get going. <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes the obedience can be a excuse. Oh, well, I really wasn't sure if that's what he meant, or um, if he wasn't talking directly to me, and uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, and, uh, well, and there's a spirit of fear in it. That's not the Holy Spirit. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Love of the Lord is the end of wisdom. It's the goal of wisdom. It's the fullness of wisdom. It's the fulfillment. I work for the Marian Fathers. They promote the Divine Mercy message and devotion. And the heart of that is all those words on the image. Jesus, I trust in you. Go, you are sent. <laughs> Where is God in these dark times? Why isn't he acting? You're sitting there, mystical body of Christ, and you're asking this question. Why? I think um, to, uh, something I've seen on your blog and your other writings is, uh, is that theme of divine mercy and, um, and also Fatima. Um, I think having a, a good prayer life is, is kind of part of our preparation as well um, yeah. to evangelize. And I know you've talked a bit about um, about praying the rosary every day and um, making the, the first uh, Saturday masses. Um, do you have any strategies that you use to, um, to get that discipline? Well, when you fail to do it, don't let that stop you is number one. Um, I am never more slothful than on a first Saturday. Really, I am. I am. I am never. I never have more excuses to not go and do it than on a first Saturday. I think that proves how important these things are. You know, screw tape whispers in your ear when something matters, not when something doesn't. The devil doesn't need to be tempting you if you're already in his camp. So. Recognize when that's happening. Recognize when you have a good intention, something that fits your, your state in life, something that fits your own vocation, something that fits your call, something that is clearly asked for by Jesus and Mary, that the church has approved. And notice when every excuse happens. Notice when all of a sudden you can't get out of your chair or something like that. Okay, good. 
The devil doesn't like it. Go. Um, I think there's also just the element of... Um, it's not a matter of being good at the rosary. It's a matter of just keeping at it. I think that that's the sort of prayer that does all sorts of things that we don't notice, that we're not, that we're not able to discern while it's happening. But in hindsight, it makes all the difference in the world. Um, and then, yeah, prayer is essential to any of this. Why? The Catholic faith is a relationship. If you do not spend time with God, you will not know God. You will not love God. And it's not a matter of you having to do it well. You are the imperfect one. He is the perfect one in this relationship. We're all less than him. We are all dependent upon him. Everything we have is a gift from him already. He holds us in existence moment to moment by loving us, by remembering us, by knowing us. It's not a matter of us giving him something he doesn't already have. That's not what this is about. You don't have to be good at prayer to do it right. Just do it. Just talk to him and listen. And he does speak. He does speak. If you, if you in the moment, can manage to be absolutely detached from the outcome, from, from his answer, he'll speak. He'll let you know what's what. There are great rules of discernment from the Jesuits. Father Gallagher has books on this. Really useful, really helpful. Some stuff from Father Michael Gately as well. Um, but just pray, just do it. He hears you. You may not hear him. He's the one who matters most in this relationship. So it's okay. It's all right. Uh, yeah. No converts without prayer. No life in the church without prayer. No hope, no vocations. We have nothing without prayer. So, um, uh, other than, so you wrote this book, what, what are you working on now? Well, most recently it's been Father Chris Ehlers and Jason Lewis's After Suicide, which I think is going to be a rather remarkable contribution in a lot of ways, far more than I think people are expecting even, to some of the conversation about praying for the dead, praying specifically for those who have lost their lives to suicide, and helping those who have been left behind. But there's also some pretty radical implications for helping helping all the deceased, which I think that as people read the book, it'll become clear and, and hopefully just bring a lot of hope to a lot of people. Mm. Good thing to release, too, just uh, shortly before All Saints. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we're in such a crisis. That's been one thing that's emerged as we've done the, re you know, the they they working on the book and me doing the editing and just were you know keeping abreast of the news and hearing things come up and just there are so many people losing their lives to suicide these days it's this tremendously awful epidemic so that hopefully then father is able to help father and jason are able to help some of the people who have lost their loved ones to suicide and then prevent copycat suicides yeah and i find that um i feel like there's barriers to talking about the Catholic faith and bringing the Catholic faith into the secular world, but there's something strangely, uh, there's a strange openness that the secular world seems to have when it comes to death. Uh, they don't like Catholicism, but they do like All Saints Day. Like Dia de Muertos is mm -hmm. getting more and more popular every year. Um, 
and you know you try to hide the christianity but there's crosses painted right on the forehead of those skulls right there <laughs> yeah. um and you know like vampire books and you know exorcism books there's something about that last human thing that Absolutely. Makes you less afraid to talk about it, strangely enough. On some level, I think everyone knows the truth. On some level, everyone knows that the Jews are in an endless covenant relationship with God, and everybody knows that the Catholic Church is, in fact, Christ's church. And so, yeah, the exorcist movies, what do you, what do, you do when, oh God, she's possessed, say the, the parents or whatever? Mm-hmm. All right, time to call the Catholic priest. Um, on some level... Near-death experiences, there's a sense in which people know that we're, we know these things, that we live these realities more deeply, more intensely somehow, that the, we're the people who believe in the sacraments, we're the people who believe in an incarnational reality, which you kind of have to believe in in order to be able to handle death and, and the afterlife and that sort of thing, to have hope, to give hope. Um, I don't. I assume you saw the Colbert interview with Anderson Cooper. No, I didn't. Colbert. Colbert had given had quoted Tolkien in an interview months or years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, what punishments of God are not gifts? And Cooper quoted that through tears, and asked Colbert, "Do you believe that?" And Colbert paused for a moment, then he said, "Yeah." He explained, if existence is a gift, then the awful stuff must also be received as a gift. We have no choice. And they had this incredibly profound conversation around this, doing exactly what you were talking about, the Catholic able to give real insight, kind of real hope to the guy who, I don't know what, if anything, Cooper practices. So. Wow. I had no idea. I'm going to look that up right after this. Yeah. That's crazy. That's pretty crazy. So, um, since you you have a a unique insight into the Catholic literary culture working at Marian Press, um, what do you think, what do you see for the future of Catholic publishing and Catholic literature? I think we have the exact same issues facing us that secular publishing does. Amazon, ebooks, and and this this remodeling of the whole media consumption thing. Um, it used to be television, radio, newsprint. Now it's YouTube, Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, streaming services of whatever sort. <laughs> yeah, it's what are you competing? I have to keep on reminding our authors, you're not competing with Dr. Hahn and Peter Craved and whatever. You're competing with YouTube, with the newest video game, with celebrity gossip, with Facebook, you know, mm-hmm. We aren't, we aren't just operating in Catholic world, ever. We're always operating in an incredibly wired, incredibly connected world. Yeah, and I so, like... Yeah. One of um, something a secular author told me, and I love it, and I, it's definitely become a motto of mine, is there's no... The only competition in publishing is a bad book. Yes. Because nobody ever finishes reading... Um, a great fantasy novel and says, well, I don't need to read any more of that genre anymore. You know, they're like, no, I want the next thing. Yeah. <laughs> no one ever um, reads, you know, a really informative uh, 
you know, apologetics book and goes, oh, well, that's that's all there is to learn. There's nothing else that I have left to learn for apologetics. Yeah. You hope uh, it is a foolish person who would say such a thing. No, it, it, it's a matter of giving them something real. So the future of Catholic publishing is giving them truth, but not just truth, giving it to them beautifully with love. You know, one of... Father Spitzer's got this great list of the transcendentals and healing the culture, all of which are God. God is truth, perfect, complete, and absolute, unconditional truth. God is beauty, perfect, complete, and absolute, unconditional beauty. Being, love, um, these these are all God. But, you know, reading that, it really struck me the way in which we, we do the worst when we split those apart. So we have an inquisition when we're only focused on truth. We have apostasy when we're only focused on love. Flannery O'Connor's great quote, sentimentality leads to the gas chambers. Um, we have Oscar Wilde in his decadent days when we're only focused on beauty. You know, once you separate those, once you try to take the different truths and split them apart, as Chesterton talks about in orthodoxy, the heresies go wild. It's, it's a truth that has been taken out of the orthodox organic tangle of truths, and this is the only important thing. And it's it's easy to understand why people do that. Yeah, God is beauty. So worshiping beauty, you understand where that instinct is coming from. Yes, God is love. So you, you understand where that move comes from. At the same time, though, he is also truth. He is also goodness. He is also the other transcendentals. And so you want to do a really excellent work of publishing. You have to have a bit of all of it. Beauty, goodness, truth, being, and love. It's all got to be there. Sounds impossible. This is where inspiration comes in. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in. This is where craft comes in. You know, a true artist often pulls all those together without even trying. And so here you come back to our issue with them not trying. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's there's a lot of trying. There's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. There's there is misery in doing it right, but there's also <laughs> transcendental joy. Yeah. It's 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 a it's the kind of misery that's a gift. It yeah, the cross leads to the resurrection. Yeah. Um so what do you think uh it's going to take to um build this vibrant Catholic literary culture? Well, it's, I mean I mean the, the fundamental answer to that is the authors to write it. You know, Chesterton didn't have to have a patron, he was just brilliant. <laughs> And the readers to read it, you know? I don't, I don't know. This guy's not Catholic, uh, but, like, H.P. Lovecraft is this yeah. famous classic writer, and nobody knew who he was until he was dead, which is kind of yeah. kind of sad, not necessarily for him, yeah. um, but for the people that lived during his time. This is true. At the same time, if you are called to write, then write. Your call comes from the eternal God. So time is in his hands. If he wants you to be discovered in 100 years, all right, that'll happen. De Montfort. De Montfort wrote most of his stuff, and it got stuck in a chest during the French Revolution and was buried in a field. And they found it, I think, late 1800s. You'd have to look at Father Mike's 33 Days to Morning Glory to see again where that was. But De Montfort's great works were lost for 100, 200 years and then came back. He knew it was going to happen. He prophesied it. Faustina, 
her, her writings were put under a ban by the church in 58-59. That was not lifted until 78 by Paul VI. Um, and her diary is one of the ongoing best-selling Catholic books in the world and changes lives. I can say that because we interview people whose lives have been changed by this. We get the miracle stories. So, write. <laughs> if you are called to write, write. If you're called to create, do so. Do it for God. Do it for love of God. Do it with all the excellence you can muster. But at the same time, do not be so focused on that as to overlook the fact that God can work with whatever you give him. Ostina had two years of formal education and liked to read apart from that. I'm told the Polish diary is written phonetically. She was not spelling her words. She was sounding them out in this massive multi-hundred page, multi-book work. That is such an encouragement because I am a terrible, ter terrible speller. <laughs> God will take what you've got and he will save souls with it. Now I've got uh, Faustina, patron saint of bad spelling, and St. Colby, patron saint of messy desks. Those yes. aren't official titles. Those are the ones that I, that I use in my prayers. <laughs> yeah, you can start a movement with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could. You could. Well, it's been, uh, it's been great talking with you and, um, and hearing about your book and you know, how we can uh, evangelize the culture. So thank you for thank you for talking with me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and uh, listeners, if uh, you want to find uh, your next great Catholic read, you can go to catholicreads.com, um, click on your favorite genre, and start discovering uh, great geniuses writing even today. Uh, and if you are like, oh, I can't afford to buy any books right now. Um, no worries, you can subscribe to our weekly email list and we'll send you an email, uh, a book once a week, marked down 50% off to free. So it's a great way to discover new authors and not break your, break your bank doing it. So thank you guys.